Hi, everyone. This is Charting Queer Health, a podcast at the intersection of queer culture, healthcare, and research. On behalf of Howard Brown Health in Chicago, I'm your host, Matt. I'm a cis white gay man, a recent Chicago transplant, and I have the incredible opportunity to sit down with various experts across our organization and across our community to learn from their expertise, amplify their stories and voices, and advance the conversation surrounding queer healthcare. Joining us today is Dr. Martin Gorbian. Doctor, thank you for coming. Would you mind introducing yourself, your role here, and your pronouns? Of course. I, I am Marty Gorbian, he, him, his. And I am a geriatrician, uh, and I've been in practice for over 30 years, but I'm very new to Howard Brown, and I'm so very happy to be joining this team. Um, I have to mention, um, although she, I'm sure, gets tired of it, that Dr. Halberg, our chief clinical officer, was my student, resident, fellow, and faculty member in the past. So uh, I take great pride in joining her, and I love the idea that my student is now my, my supervisor. You've, you've got kind of a role reversal there, which is awesome. I think it's great. Um, so yeah, I think you're also the only guest I've had so far that's new to, newer to Howard Brown than I am, but um, that, like you said, doesn't necessarily mean you don't have a wealth of information to share with 30 years in the industry. So I'm excited to pick your brain. Today we're talking about your specialty, your field, geriatrics, um, which right off the bat might not seem to our listeners like uh, there's a ton to talk about, but over the course of like planning out these questions and talking with you a little bit before this, there is a lot to cover, sure, especially sure. as how it relates to Howard Brown, um, how we are handling it with our healthcare system within our nation and things like that. So um, dive in specifically for the, the people that don't know anything, what is geriatrics of and course. what do you do as a geriatrician? So uh, I'm have to mention that geriatric medicine is the most unpopular subspecialty in of internal medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, for decades, there have only been about 250 geriatricians that graduate to 75. It's a very it's a very steady number. Wow. And you were asking earlier if there's a negative connotation. And uh, ironically, hospice and palliative medicine, uh, which is very different, but can be related, um, has grown wildly in popularity. So uh, there are so many medical specialties where we deal with chronic illness, and doctors often don't love chronic illness, but we see that in endocrinology, diabetes, pulmonary medicine, emphysema, and so on and so forth. So there's hardly a specialty that doesn't have a chronic illness. But uh, as someone said to me years ago, if you define your specialty by falls, dementia, and urinary incontinence, are you surprised why anybody isn't signing up? And I'm here to tell you, as somebody who's been working in nursing homes for 51 years, I started when I was 15 and I'm 66, um, that um, there's nothing more exciting and there's nothing more fulfilling I um, always enjoyed working with older adults as I tell people I I speak the language. Uh, I was one of those people who really loved being around their grandparents, and that's not an uncommon story for geriatricians. Not everybody has nice grandparents, and uh, we have to remember that. I had wonderful grandparents who were just uh, pleasures pleasures to be near. So... um, Geriatrics is um, uh, defined in different ways. So often kind of the generic uh, cutoff in a practice is 65 or older. Geriatricians tend to take care of the most frail 
of older adults, and usually we're not impressed till somebody's about 85 years old. Uh, but we're going to talk about how it's different in the LGBTQ community. Uh, geriatricians do sometimes work in nursing homes, but we are not simply nursing home doctors. We tend to be employed physicians because uh, to do geriatrics well uh, and to be able to have uh, enough time and the right resources, generally one has to be employed by a medical center uh, or some type of clinic system uh, that supports geriatrics. Geriatrics is a money loser. Hmm. Um, even though there are ways to look at it that shows that's not true uh, because of all the referrals we make and so on and so forth. Uh, but I've been in academics for my entire career, and I've always been fortunate to have an interdisciplinary team, which is a centerpiece of geriatric care, social worker, nurse practitioner, with all of the other people available for consultation. So uh, only 3% of people who live in nursing homes are cared for by fellowship-trained geriatricians. Wow. And when I tell that to people, they're often pretty shocked. But number one, there are very few of us. Number two, there are many people who live in nursing homes. And number three, geriatricians are doing a lot of different things. They're doing research, they're working in clinics, they're working in hospitals. Um, becoming a hospitalist is very popular right now and some hospital systems who are uh, avant-garde are hiring geriatricians as hospitalists to, mm. to pay special attention to their, um, to their older patients. Um, Geriatricians tend to like people with multiple issues. Um, I have a long passion for caring for people with Alzheimer's disease mm. and other primary progressive dementias, but that certainly doesn't define our specialty. It's these days, it wasn't always the case, it's easy to get a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. It's hard to find somebody who wants, wants to do to the ongoing care, mm -hmm. who wants to stick by the side of the individual and their family for the 5, 10, 15 years that may ensue after the diagnosis is, is made. <coughs> Excuse yeah, me. Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, you mentioned your grandparents. Um, my grandparents were the same way. They've they've all passed now, but my, my mom made the choice when my grandma was needing a assistive care living um we moved her in with us and so we had a, a wonderful eight months of her life that she lived we turned our dining room into her little studio and i got a glimpse into what it's like to to kind of care for somebody at that stage in their life and i you're exactly right it does take a specific kind of person to choose to be in that field and and somebody that gets along so well and like you said can speak the language can can step into these people's lives when they need it the most so I think it's there's a lot of nobility in geriatrics. Why do how, how do we how do we Thank boost you. numbers in that field? Well, <laughs> that's been discussed since the late seventies, <laughs> and um, nobody's come up with the answer. I think there are uh, various ways that we can enhance the number of primary care physicians in the country because that number is getting smaller and smaller, uh, and that would be to offer loan repayment for medical students. Mm. And that would be a, a very easy way. And perhaps if somebody, uh, in order to pay off their 
uh, obligation had to work with older adults for three years, they might find that they liked it. Yeah, and get a chance at least. That's right. Yeah. So uh, many medical schools don't offer geriatrics, um, or there might be one one-hour lecture on the topic of aging, and uh, aging affects every organ system. But of course, we want to teach about uh, how we take care of the whole person. Uh, it's interesting. There's a laundry list of things that um, they don't teach you in medical school. Nutrition, sexuality, geriatrics, how to take the keys away from somebody who can't drive anymore, oh, how to evaluate decisional capacity, how to talk to people who are dying, how to have difficult conversations. So um, in medical, uh, undergraduate medical education, all of these departments are vying for a little slice of the pie within the curriculum. And um, depending on the school and depending on their perspective, it's not always a priority. Not always a priority. So here at Howard Brown uh, and other places across America like Howard Brown, although there aren't a lot as special as this. Um, we have a very significant population of long-term survivors of HIV. Mm. And in the field of geriatrics, there, there's um, a very interesting uh, overlap between the two fields. Um, I don't think people with HIV typically say I'm going to go see a geriatrician. Yeah, um, you're jumping right into what I wanted to talk about. This is perfect because I one of my first projects here was a video about World AIDS Day on December 1st. And uh, we interviewed a ton of people, got a wide variety of perspectives on it. And one of the things we talked about was now that medicine has progressed enough, we have people that are living with HIV that are entering you know, their elder years. And so it becomes a whole new medical challenge to something that we didn't think we'd have to do initially of, of helping people enter the later years of their life while they're living with HIV. So that's right. sorry to interrupt you. Please continue. No, no, that's okay. Happily, um, that group is getting larger and larger, yeah. and that's based on all of the incredible successes that uh, we've enjoyed with regard to HIV treatment and now prevention. Uh, but if you were 20 when you developed uh, HIV AIDS uh, and you're now 50, uh, you might look a little older than uh, a 50-year-old who didn't have HIV. So there are a number of things that happen, um, whether it's due to the medications, uh, although the medications are getting better all the time, or whether it's due to the various comorbidities uh, that might have occurred as a result of HIV, uh, heart disease, atherosclerosis, bone disease, a number, uh, sarcopenia, which is loss of, of muscle mass. Mm-hmm. Um, sarcopenia by itself is a very complicated, uh, a complicated field uh, that we're just still coming to understand. And it, of course, is not just uh, related to those with HIV, um, but why older adults uh, lose muscle strength and muscle tone. There's an inflammatory basis to that topic, and Mm -hmm. it's um, very, very interesting from a scientific point. But some would argue in our field that um, the things that happen to the longtime survivors really are kind of a prototypic geriatric syndrome uh, because in geriatrics we want to make sure that 
everybody's on the right medications, the right doses of the medications. Uh, the term polypharmacy comes up a lot. And, you know, sometimes it's that any, anybody over that's taking over five drugs has polypharmacy. That's not true. Every drug has to have a purpose. And Every, polypharmacy is what to be? Too many too many pills. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That, that's, that's the stereotype of like having the different dispensaries. Yeah. Of like I, there's so much to, to take and to try to do every day. That's right. Okay. So, um, you know, adherence to medication is mm -hmm. a difficult thing, and that's getting better and better with HIV as combinations are yeah. being made. Um, many people are just on one pill a day, and now we have injections um, that are going to make adherence even easier. Um, but uh, if you're treating um, heart disease, lung disease, bone disease, et cetera, along with the HIV, you know, that becomes um, the kind of individual that geriatricians love to see. Love to see a little ironically, meaning that like no doctor wants patients or wants people to be unhealthy, but we do. Oh, of course not. <laughs> but we do like seeing those But kinds there's of a patients. group of doctors who enjoy right. taking care of those patients, just like you can go it. to the neurologist and get your, and sorry to all my good neurology, <laughs> neurologist friends out there, you can get the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease along with the pamphlet as I mean, you leave the it. office. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, my mother who died about six years ago, um, was in another city with my sister and she got her biopsy results back and she had lung cancer and she was with the pulmonary doctor and my sister started to ask a few questions and he said well I'm going to refer you to oncologist and here's a pamphlet as they walked out the door I, yeah. within five minutes of getting Sheesh. a diagnosis and these are horrible stories. Uh, that was that led perfectly into my next question aside from training more providers in geriatrics, what is our healthcare system lacking in terms of its capacity to care for people that are aging? There's certainly awareness. Mm -hmm. Since the 70s, the Rand Corporation and other think tanks have been writing about, you know, by such and such a year, we're going to have X number of people over the age of 70, 80, 90. Um, and we need the following numbers of doctors, nurses, social workers, physical therapists. Sadly, the numbers aren't matching up. Nothing has happened. Mm -hmm. Those numbers are not getting any better. Geriatrics is no more popular in nursing and social work than it is in medicine. Um, so we're, we're lacking a, a concern. We're lacking a warmth. Uh, we're lacking an acknowledgement that um, the heterogeneities, the heterogeneity among older adults is so great, and not every 80-year-old needs a geriatrician. You know, we have all taken care of people who are, you know, mountain climbing and, yeah. you know, rafting at, uh, you know, at a, as older adults. Uh, so it's, it's not about the number, as we always say, it's about functional status. So we have 50-year-olds, and this is unrelated to HIV, who look like 80-year-olds, and we have 80-year-olds who look like 50-year-olds. Mm -hmm. So it's about functional status. There's a very sophisticated concept that nobody really um, buys, but that's preventive gerontology. And that is when people are 
interested in learning how to age well, I'll start seeing a geriatrician when I'm 50. Mm. And that seldom happens. How to set yourself up for success, so to speak. That's right. Having said that, I've taken care of a lot of the adult children. It's funny to say the children of my patients. Right. Um, because of my patients, 90, uh, the, the child might be 75 years or, you know, mm-hmm. 70. Thereabouts, yeah. Yeah. So, um, and I love when that happens. Um, but people in their 50s don't typically come to a geriatrician. Mm -hmm. In fact, I talk to people in their 60s and 70s, and when I tell them what I do, they say, oh, someday I'm going to need you. Mm -hmm. And I look at them and smile and say, yes. Yes, you could need me now, Yeah, but whatever. Um, I often tell a story which I think is very illustrative. I took care of a very famous uh, social work professor uh, whose specialty was gerontology. And she was a lovely woman. And uh, she came to my office and I took care of her for several months. And then she wrote me a letter and she said, Marty, I think you're wonderful. I think you're a good doctor, but I can't sit in your waiting room with all of those people who are screaming, the people who have Alzheimer's disease. This is what she had devoted more than 40 years of her career to writing about, to teaching about, to studying, but she couldn't sit in my waiting room. Mm -hmm. Now, my friends who are my own age at the time, you know, in their 50s, they had no problem sitting in my waiting room because I did have a population of uh, younger younger people. It's when you're on the precipice. It's when you're closer that it might be harder to sit in a geriatrician geriatrician's waiting room. Yeah, it's it's the you know looking down the road at what what's possible, what could happen. I mean, nobody wants to be confronted with that reality, so to speak, right? I mean... Not in America, we don't. Yeah, well, it's, that's... You're nailing these questions because that was right into my next question of... Systemically, I mean, I don't have a lot of happy memories in nursing homes. Like I mentioned earlier, my family went to great lengths to avoid putting loved ones in nursing homes. And... I mean, there's a lot of stuff that plays into it systemically, uh, but I think there's also this culture of, and at least it seems this way, in a lot of other countries, the concept of growing old um, is that family takes care of you. It's it's less of this, like, we'll put you in a medical facility. Um, it's, you're going to come live with us and we will figure out the ways to help care for you am i am i misled in thinking that way or is that it's very true although some of those countries are changing yeah um i was lucky enough to go to cuba some years ago and um they took us on what was probably a staged field trip uh to an adult daycare center but um yes in in many countries um that is the case i've you know, watched over the decades of caring for people, um, that families that have very large extended networks where there might be, you know, some degree of unemployment 
Um, it's sometimes easier than finding a family caregiver in a family where everybody is working at a high-powered job, working 80 hours a week. That's an excellent point because the only reason my family was uh, able to take in my grandmother was because my mom was able to work from home. So she could just be the next room over and could pause to make meals or bring her to the bathroom or whatever was needed. Um, But if she had not been in that situation, it wouldn't have been a reality. So I think maybe it stems from you know, the Latin American countries proclivity towards, you know, families and, and kind of that intentional community, but also um, towards our country's fixation on um, working and, and being productive and everybody, you know, you're, you're not anything unless you have a college degree and a nine to five and, and, and that sort of atmosphere. So it's maybe because of a lot of factors, we're less likely to take in our loved ones once they start aging. But. Sure. Um In other countries, such as England, being a caregiver is a very respectable job. Mm -hmm. Um, Being a CNA in an American nursing home is more important than I can ever explain to anyone. Mm -hmm. They are our eyes and ears. Um, But when somebody's paid $9 or $10 an hour and turnover rates in some nursing homes are 300%, you can only imagine why the quality of care isn't better. And despite all of the regulatory issues and, you know, the the, the oversight of nursing homes, when you read about it, um, would suggest that every nursing home is, you know, run meticulously. And of course, that's not the case. Yeah. To zoom kind of back out towards um, aging in the queer community, I'm curious, we talked a little bit about HIV But so much of my perception of what it's like to age is based on um, a straight family, so to speak, a straight family with kids. So it's mom or dad, it's time to give me the car keys, mom or dad, we're going to put you in this home, et cetera, et cetera. For a queer community, um, depending on your identity and in your life, you you might not have kids to tell you to give up the car keys. You might not have that kind of voice in your life. So what is what is aging for these people look like when they don't have those people that love them enough to say that to them? So anybody who is single and childless, not that all children are there to take care of their parents. um, You know, I'm a single childless person and I'm 66 years old and I wonder who's going to change my diapers if it ever comes to that. And I think anybody who is Um, you know, without family. And I say this because the medical system is set up in a way where there's an assumption that there is a relative to step in. When you have a shoulder replacement and you are immobilized for eight weeks and you don't qualify to go to a rehab facility because you're ambulatory, it is just assumed that there is someone to help one one-handed um, individual for the next eight weeks. Mm-hmm. And that's just not true. And of course, that isn't just about the queer community. It's about anybody in that situation. But of course, the queer community, you know, has very special issues. There's a, a wonderful documentary called Generation Silent. 
um, which was made by Stu Maddox uh, some years ago, and I had a small involvement in it. And it's about the idea that when uh, queer individuals go into nursing homes or uh, assisted living facilities, that they might go have to go back into the closet. And one of the central characters in this um, very, very touching film is a transgender woman who is at the end of life. She has lung cancer and um, she's able to reunite with her with her son at the end of the movie. They hadn't you know, had a relationship at all over the previous decades. Um, it's a very, very touching movie about um, uh, they have examples of, I think, three or four couples who have been together for decades. Um, but the decision the decision to put one's partner or spouse into a nursing home is always difficult, but there is an extra layer of issues. You know, we all want to be treated with respect. We all want to be seen and heard. We all want dignity. And, you know, I hate to say it, but nursing homes are not typically a place where um, one is know, respected in that way. When I've lectured on this topic, um, people have come up to me and they say, Dr. Gorbin, you don't think much of nursing homes, do you? And I say, oh, 51 years I've been working in nursing homes. Mm -hmm. That's not the issue. Mm -hmm. I think there is a large population of people who think just like I do, which is we have to make these places better. And how to do it, I have no idea. After 51 years, um, my father, who's 94 and a half, he was a businessman, and I, of course, shied away from anything related to business. But he said, everything is about money. Mm. And you know, I hate to say it, uh, it makes me sad, it tugs on my heart. But many, not all of the things that we're talking about could be solved with more oh, resources. Mm -hmm. You can't make somebody warmer or kinder or more thoughtful or more contemplative, but by having better staffing ratios, by trying to get people who uh, are trained better to have facilities where there's uh, cultural sensitivity training, we we can try to make we can try to make these places better. But back to Howard Brown, we're very fortunate because. Um, Howard Brown has made a very strategic decision to uh, enhance their aging services uh, area. There are already uh, some wonderful people, Kelly Rice and her team, uh, who are doing great community outreach and doing a lot of fantastic programming. Uh, Dr. Magda Halberg is a geriatrician uh, who has wears many, many hats, but um, I was with her this morning and we saw older adults and it was it was great. Yeah. Um, and um, maybe not everybody knows, but um, uh, Howard Brown has a very large population of straight individuals and mm -hmm. they come to Howard Brown for a number of reasons. And one of those reasons is for, for older adults, as we, you know, look in the uh, as we look to the future, um, we have the interdisciplinary team. We have the resources that um, uh, queer individuals, especially as they age, can take advantage of in terms of support groups, mental health, 
counseling for a variety of issues, uh, some social uh, social groups as well. So um, these are the kinds of things that you're likely not to find at a traditional medical center. So it really is one-stop shopping. Yeah, that's that's something I realized very quickly. And it's one of the things that sets Howard Brown apart, whether it comes to or, you know, out of our roots in the HIV epidemic, we learned very quickly that medicine is not just one, you know, problem that you're solving, it's your entire life. So it's, it's palliative care wouldn't be the correct term necessarily palliative care, but it, it would be, it, it's holistic, I, I guess would mm-hmm. be the more proper term. So palliative care um, and hospice are often confused. Palliative care mm-hmm. simply means treating symptoms without any reference to a life-limiting illness. Okay. However, in common parlance, the two terms are often used hand in hand. So holistic interdisciplinary care, gotcha. which everybody at every age in every community should um, Deserves, yeah. should re- receive, um, is something that we're equipped to do very, very well at yeah. Howard Brown. Yeah, that, that's that's what I meant, the, the holistic nature of it, because... Um, at least for me in other healthcare settings, it's easy to feel like you walk in, get treated for something, walk out, and you're like, well, that is actually related to this other thing. And it's it's this whole web. And I mean, your whole life impacts whether or not you'll be able to adhere to, to medical guidance. And so I love that Howard Brown is kind of treats patients as a whole person as opposed to just a set of symptoms. There's my mind is racing right now because there's so many great points. I wanted to go back to what you said about being in nursing homes as you know, an LGBTQ person who's aging, how we take for granted that acknowledging somebody's pronouns in the healthcare system now is still kind of revolutionary. I mean, it's it's the norm at Howard Brown, but making sure pronouns are correct and that there's you know care given to trans people in a healthcare setting is still new. So when you extend that all the way up to nursing home care, I mean as understaffed as those facilities normally are, I'm, I mean, I'm sure no trans person is, is having their pronouns asked, or in some cases they might not be able to disclose their own pronouns. And then there's, there's or, just so much more that goes into that on that level that I or don't. Or they f- might be asked to pray the gay away. Right. And yeah. we hear those stories from time to time where somebody um, who's very religious is caring for somebody who's 80 or 90 who says, oh, gosh, it's never too late. You know, we're going to we're going to uh, take care of this. They problem. think this is their opportunity to this step in and save their soul, that's so to right. speak. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's just so hard for me to think about that somebody has lived such a long life and gets to live out their last few years with that kind of care, which is disheartening. But the I guess the other thing that I thought of earlier was uh, you had mentioned, I think before we started recording that geriatrics is a money loser, or maybe that was right at the beginning. Um, And it, I mean, it makes sense. Other medicine, the goal is to heal somebody so that they can return to the workforce and contribute to society, so to speak. Uh, or at least that's that's a byproduct of, of caring for people. But geriatrics generally, and I might be wrong here, aren't, um, it sounds awful, but contributing to society on the same level that a younger person might be. So there's probably less financial incentive for a society to care for elderly people than there is for a society to care for middle-aged or teenagers well, or whatever. That would lead us to 
uh, sobering discussion about healthcare economics. Yeah, I was saying that's a can of worms, isn't uh, it? Hospitals like to fix broken bones and joints. Mm -hmm. They like to deliver babies. They like to remove brain tumors. They like to do organ transplants. Uh, So it's not that they want all younger patients. Mm -hmm. Uh, They want certain younger patients. You know, uh, there's a lot of cherry picking that that goes on. And uh, so that's a a very complex uh, issue. But when we look at... That's episode two. Okay. (laughs) When, When you look, and many people have tried to see um, the referral patterns of geriatricians, Mm -hmm. actually it doesn't look so bad at all. Mm -hmm. And when Medicare patients are admitted to the hospital, length of stay is always a concern because you get a DRG payment, a lump sum. Mm -hmm. And so I always say, don't be frightened of having that person in the hospital. Just manage them well. Mm -hmm. You know, just have a system in place where... Um, you don't start thinking about the discharge plan 20 minutes before the discharge. Oh, yeah. Which like, even, are closed. Bye. Even, like, yeah, yeah, and it still happens. I know we, we talked about it a little already. Um, aside from HIV AIDS, um, as the queer population, population is aging, are there any other conditions that we're seeing that is unique to the queer community? Um, I know aging is kind of the universal human experience, um, but when it, when it comes to a queer community aside from HIV AIDS, what else are we seeing, if anything? So isolation and loneliness Mm -hmm. are not unique to the queer community, but we have special, um, we experience life through a special set of lenses uh, and see life through a special set of lenses. So AARP um, has kind of taken on loneliness as the new epidemic New York is the loneliest city in the country. Really? Every year it's ranked the loneliest huh. city. You know, that old saying. Where does Chicago know? rank? Do we know? I think it's 49th or 63rd. Take- no, I have no idea. Oh, okay. I was going to say, I'll take that. <laughs> that sounds great. It only makes sense that, and how it affects the queer community, especially during the pandemic. So it only makes sense that that continues all the way up, regardless of what your age is. Everybody feels that um, during the pandemic, and especially increasingly as you become more housebound and Right. So if you harder. if you layer aging mm. on top of what the queer community is experiencing, um, that really that really ups the ante. Absolutely makes sense. It it sounds a little brash, but a lot of people in my generation have a hard time. Like it's always very what's in it for me. So when it comes to geriatrics, how how will how will caring for uh, our aging relatives well produce better outcomes for health outcomes for society as a whole? Is that a fair question to ask? Like, are, are, are we learning stuff about medicine as a result of taking care of these patients better um, that will improve the prognosis of aging for the future? So as we always say, there's no one way to be 80. Mm -hmm. Uh, just in the same way that there's no one way to be 40. Uh, One of the things that uh, makes geriatricians cringe is when somebody says... Did I just make you cringe? No, 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 (laughs) is when they say, old people, they're so cute. Oh, Um, yeah. Such an infantilizing thing to say. And they're not always cute. We never go around saying 52-year-olds are adorable. Aren't they just adorable? You know, we we don't say that. Doing a better job caring for older adults raises um, the level of uh, just about everything in society 
it saves money. It's the right thing to do. It's a moral imperative. Um, older adults will be happier. The people who no longer have to provide that care because people are healthier will be happier. Uh, so it's a win-win-win situation. Um, but we at sometimes have the idea that, you know, someone will say, well, there's a fitness craze sweeping America. Mm -hmm. um, there may be, uh, but we still have a lot of people who are, and this is unrelated to being mm -hmm. queer, who are not taking great care of themselves. Um, and, you know, when you look at our obesity rates and when you look at a lot of other rates, you know, our country doesn't do very well. Not generally. No. We're, we're a pretty sedentary um, country and we, we like our Cheetos. We're approaching the, the end of our time, sadly. This is, has been incredible. But the, the one question I kind of want to ask you to round things out is how can... Uh, your day-to-day -day person, me or you, um, if we're, well, I guess not you because you are involved in um, geriatrics, but, but how can how can your day-to-day -day person kind of advocate for better healthcare uh, in the geriatric field or support this endeavor? Because it's not necessarily something that's on front of mind for people. So how can we, how can we get our elders the care they deserve? Everybody needs an advocate. And uh, my very brilliant 86-year-old neighbor who just came back from the doctor talking about her Crohn's disease. And I said, so what about the five questions we had talked about? And she said, oh my God, I forgot to ask all of the questions. So what everybody could do in an ideal world was would be partner up with somebody who needs an advocate mm -hmm. and be their, be their companion uh, to take them to appointments, but perhaps go into the office and help advocate for them uh, and help ask the questions because uh, even though we always say to patients, write your questions down before you come in, um, most everybody gets a little a little flustered. I think that's true regardless of age. I was talking about that with Dr. Corey Brown, that there's a lot of doorknob questions. When you the doctor puts their hand on the doorknob to leave and the patient goes, well, wait, actually. Yeah. So I think that's a phenomenon that transcends aging. So I think I, I think you're right. I think that idea of, of partnerships and kind of encouraging each other to advocate for our own health is is really great. Um, any last thoughts that you want to impart to our listeners nationwide uh, about, the, <laughs> about the field of geriatrics uh, that you want them to take home with them? Um, not only is it not depressing, um, it's one of the it's one of the happiest uh, areas one can one can dive into. Um, I love stories. I love hearing stories. Um, not all old people are wise, just like they're not all cute. Mm -hmm. But there certainly are a number of people who have incredible stories. And um, I just recently finished a graduate program, and my capstone project was developing a podcast yeah. uh, on aging, not about diseases, but on storytelling. And hopefully one of the things that you and I are going to be working on together is um, – doing exactly that, Sharing those stories. finding people yeah. who have interesting stories to tell and put together an audio library. I yeah. would absolutely love that. Just I like were... they do on NPR. Yeah, yeah. We can get really Storyboard. close to the mics like they do on NPR too. Um, <laughs> I think that's a brilliant idea because that that's something that strikes me so often when interacting with this population is that there's just so much wisdom and knowledge there to share. And a lot of times 
not a lot of people to listen to it. So if that's what this podcast is all about is amplifying other people's voices. Um, I say it in my intro, you know, amplifying other people's stories and experiences and voices. So I, I think that's an awesome sentiment to round out our time together. Um, Dr. Gorman, thank you so much for coming. We're going to have to have you back uh, another time to talk about my pleasure. everything else. Thank, thank you. you so much. And that has been our episode for today. If you are curious about Howard Brown's geriatric programs, you can go to www.howardbrown.org to learn more. Thanks for listening.